It's been said that if you're not willing to die for something, then you probably don't have something to live for either. That became very clear to William B. Travis, a 26-year-old lawyer who was holed up in a little mission called the Alamo with 189 volunteers. They were surrounded by Santa Ana, the Mexican general, and 2,000 of his men who were demanding surrender. Travis knew that at any time his own men might surrender and he had to do something. So he pulled the sword out, his sword out, drew a line in the sand, stepped across that line, and passionately told the people why he was willing to fight to the death for Texas independence. He said, we're all going to die. It's not our business to make a fruitless effort to try to save our own life, but to choose the manner of our death. We could surrender, and they would execute us. We could rush out at them and charge them, but they would slaughter us. Or we can stay and defend this mission and take as many of those men with us as we can. Who's with me? One by one, those men found something large enough in their heart to live for that they were also willing to die for it. 187 men stepped across that line that he had drawn in the sand. Jim Bowie had to actually be carried across the line on a cot. And only one man, a French mercenary, a hired gun, snuck away in the dark of night and lived to tell the tale. 188 men died at the Alamo. But they died having something to live for. They took 600 men with them, 600 of the enemies with them. And more than that, their valor and their courage inspired many more to join the cause for Texas independence, which was won just two months later. Did you hear what William Travis said? He said, We are all going to die. It's not our business to make a fruitless effort to save our own life, but to choose the manner of our death. That's a leader right there. That's a leader that I can see in the Bible as well. It reminds me of Jesus. It reminds me of Jesus who did not make a fruitless effort to save his life, but gave up his life. It reminds me of Paul, the apostle, who was an all-in until death kind of guy. And it reminds me of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a William B. Travis-like leader. He was all in. Nehemiah lived around 445 B.C. under the the reign of the Persians. He was actually a cupbearer to the king of the Persians, King Artaxerxes. This was a very respected position in the Persian government because he was very close to the king. He was kind of the king's weak spot. If he wanted to slip poison into the king's cup, he could. So he had to be a trusted guy. And King King Artaxerxes definitely did trust him. 
So he's working in the king's court, and a brother comes to visit him. His name was Hanani. He came to him from Jerusalem, and Hanani told Nehemiah about the state of Jerusalem, how the walls were destroyed, the city lay in ruins, the gates were burned with fire. This was Nehemiah's homeland. This was where his father and mother had lived. This is where his grandma and grandpa had lived. But more than that, this was the city of God. Nehemiah, as a faithful Israelite, believed that God's glory resided in the city of Jerusalem and that salvation would come from that city. So he was distraught when he heard that the walls lay in ruins and the gates were burned. He wept and he prayed to God. He prayed that the Israelites would be able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and restore the gates. He himself wanted to go back and help with this cause. But he was the servant to the king. He worked in the king's court. He couldn't just up and leave. This all takes place in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. And then we come to chapter 2 where we see Nehemiah make an enormous request of King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was, was feeling pretty down, sad, about the state of Jerusalem, and it was visible. He really cared about Jerusalem. And the king noticed. He asked, he asked Nehemiah one day why he was so down. And Nehemiah explained, how can I be happy when my city, Jerusalem, lies in ruins? And then he gives the, gets the courage to ask the king, let me go back with a, a group of people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. This was a big deal. He was talking to the king of the Persians. This was a big request. But he didn't stop there. He said, oh, and also send letters to the governors ahead of me so that I might have safe passage to go to Jerusalem. And then he asked for timber from the king's forest. Now, King Artaxerxes had very little reason to grant this request. He had far more reasons not to. But here's where you see God. Here's where you see God working. He granted every single one of Nehemiah's requests. King Artaxerxes let Nehemiah go back, gave him timber from the forest, and sent those letters. From that point... Nehemiah was all in. He was all in because he knew that God was all in for him and for the Israelites. That God was sending him on this all-in mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. God was all in for the Israelites because from the Israelites would come the Messiah. God's plan and God's grace made Nehemiah all in. And it does the same thing for you and for me. We're going to look to Nehemiah for that inspiration and for that confidence to be all in today.
Our first verse from our text for today is Nehemiah talking to the leaders of Israel. He had just spent the night surveying Jerusalem. He'd seen the destruction. He'd seen how the gates were burned. And now he's giving his State of the Jerusalem address to the people. We read, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. This was his State of the Jerusalem address and it it wasn't pretty. Jerusalem was decimated by the Babylonians. It it was, the, the walls were rubble. The gates were burned. It was ashes. But the worst part about this whole thing It was his homeland. It was the city of God. But the worst part about this whole situation is that when Nehemiah and the Israelites looked at those walls, they saw the effects of their own sin. You see, before the Babylonians came in and destroyed, they had abandoned God. They had latched on to pagan gods. They had married foreign people who led them away from the true God. And they refused to repent of their wickedness. They were encouraged time and time again, repent, repent. And they didn't. So when Nehemiah and the the Israelites are looking at these ruins, looking at these ashes, they were the ones to blame for this. From time to time, we'll step back and we'll kind of do the same thing that Nehemiah did. We'll step back and, and we'll assess ourselves. We'll assess our own lives and we'll see a lot of things that Nehemiah saw. The, the messes that we have created for ourselves, the effects of our sin. Why do we do that? Why do we create these messes for ourselves? Why do we create these ruins in our lives? It's our fault. Even a, a child can recognize this. I, when I was sent to my room when I was little for being naughty, I, it was a common thing. I would go to my room, I'd probably be pouting a little bit, and I'd go over what just happened in my head time and time again. Is there some, something I could blame? Some way I could rationalize this? Some way I could make this not all my fault, but without fail... I couldn't. It was my fault. I deserved to be punished. That's where the Israelites were at at this point. The sin that pervaded their life, the sin that pervades your life, that finds its way into every facet of your life, leaves you in ruins, and it left the Israelites in ruins. And it left them wondering how did we get to this point? How did we let it go this far? And they were at the point where they wanted to despair because the destruction was so great. I can't fix this. So Nehemiah, as a leader, says to the people, he says, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah was a powerful man. He was a powerful leader. 
of the people. So this alone might have inspired some action from the people. They might have started rebuilding and they might have followed Nehemiah for a little bit. But Nehemiah knew that the best motivation, the best inspiration came from the grace of God. He said, he continued, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. King Artaxerxes had no reason to grant Nehemiah's requests. But God allowed King Artaxerxes to grant those requests. This was God's grace to his people. This very same God was the God that punished them and sent them into exile. He was showing them grace. Now, pure and free grace. It wasn't that the Israelites suddenly walked back into God's good favor, that they were in captivity and and they started obeying God's commands. This was God showing his gracious love to the people. And that love inspired. When we step back and we assess our own lives, and when we see the ruins in our lives, and when we see how incredibly broken we are, when we realize that we can't fix ourselves, there's no self-help book that we can buy and no podcast we can listen to, to to make ourselves better. And even if we tried to fix ourselves, we'd quickly find that it was impossible. It's at that point that point that we realize how big God's grace is for us. God's grace is that big that no matter the ruins in your life, no matter the the destruction that you see around from your sin, the effects of your sin, God will reconstruct. No matter the, the decimation that has happened, because of your sin, God has forgiven you and will continue to forgive you. No matter the times that you've abandoned God in the past, God will continue to be with you. God is all in for you. And he proved it. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you. Jesus who abandoned his own glory and took on the ruins of your life so that he could reconstruct your life and make it not just an earthly life, make it an eternal life. I got a call on the phone the other day from, my, from a newspaper back home. They were doing a, a little piece on my high school basketball coach who was just being inducted into the Coaches Hall of Fame. They'd give me a little warning ahead of time so I could think about some of my memories of Coach Bauer and, and um, some things that I could tell them about him. And when I was thinking about him, a, a certain phrase came to my mind. I heard it so many times through the four years I played for him. He would talk about how you have to buy in, how there's a lot of different ways to play basketball, and we've chosen this one way. And if we're going to be successful, we need to buy in 
to his system. What he meant is we need to be all in. You have to believe in what we're doing here so that you can pour yourself into it and get better at it. Coach Bauer knew an important thing. That an all-in attitude, that a good buy-in came from the heart. Now God's not a coach. He's not your coach. But God knows the same thing. The best buy-in comes from the heart. So you know what God did? He gave you his heart. He gave you Jesus. He loved you so much, and that love inspires. That love inspired Nehemiah and the people. The people were moved to action by the gracious hand of God. The next verse says, They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. God's gracious hand inspired them. God's grace inspires you. For Nehemiah and the people that were with him, their mission was clear. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Restore Jerusalem to what it was before the Babylonians came in and and laid waste to the city. It was clear. They were moved by God's grace. They were all in for this mission, committed. But they would have been naive to think that this mission would be easy. It wasn't going to be easy. There were enemies that surrounded them on all sides. Nehemiah writes about some of those enemies. He says, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, heard that they were building the wall, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Try to put myself in the shoes of those people at that time. They, they were moved by God's grace. They were all in. They committed to this mission of rebuilding the walls, which was going to be hard enough because the walls were completely destroyed. But now you add in these enemies that were all around. And people mocking, ridiculing them, slandering them, lying about them, and threatening them. After a while, do you think that this maybe could have been a point where they started to second-guess their mission? I think it might have been. Their mission was clear. They were to rebuild the walls of the city. That's a clear mission. But had that changed? Should this really be this hard? Maybe this isn't what God wants us to be doing. God has given you a mission. Go and make disciples of all nations. You share your faith with a coworker who begins to avoid you at work from that point on. You mention Jesus around your friends and you see more eyes rolling than you care to count. You read about Christians in the news being painted as closed-minded. You as a congregation want to do ministry big here at Holy Word, but you look in your budget and you see declining funds. The mission was clear. 
go and make disciples. That's clear. But has something changed? Should it really be this hard? Is this actually what God wants us to do? That's when we look to Nehemiah's leadership. Because Nehemiah understood an important truth. Opposition does not mean that you're doing something wrong. It means you're doing something right. God promised that there would be persecution, that there would be opposition to your message. So Nehemiah responds with confidence and trust in God's message. He says, he's talking to the leaders, or he's talking, sorry, he's talking to his enemies. I answered them saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you enemies, you have no share in Jerusalem or any historic right to it. Nehemiah knew that his mission would succeed. He had confidence in that mission because that was a mission from God, and God does not fail. Despite the enemies, despite the attacks from all sides, they completed building that wall. God was with them every step of the way. God was all in for his people, Israelite, the Israelites, because from the Israelites would come the Messiah, the Messiah who would die on the cross, the one that was promised from the beginning. The Israelites were children of that promise, of the promise of the Messiah. That same Messiah who would give you your mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. You know, Jesus could have stopped there when he was giving the mission. He could have stopped there and it would have been good. We would have had a clear mission. But our God is grace and our God is love and he attaches a promise to it. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's God's love. That's God's promise. And you are children of that promise. That promise that inspires confidence. Confidence in a God who has always kept His promises, including His biggest one of Jesus. That confidence is yours to live with each and every day of your life. So what do you think? Are you all in? Or are you still wondering what an all-in person looks like? An all-in person looks like Nehemiah. He's not perfect. He's not all-in for the reward. An all-in person simply believes that God has saved him and believes that God has given him the most important mission in the world to make disciples with his word. What is keeping you from being all in. The Israelites were all in. They were all in to build the wall. We don't need that wall anymore. But the walls of heaven, they aren't full yet. There are plenty more people that we can reach with the gospel and God has promised to be with us every step of that way. 
So let's be all in here at Holy Word. Let's pour ourselves into the mission that God has laid before us because I'll tell you what, God will take all the help that he can get. He loves the lost that much. Amen.